sense, what Jesus says here is not new news to the disciples. This is the sixth time in Luke's gospel he's told them about his death. For example, back in chapter 9, he told them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus' whole life has been built around one central purpose, to go to Jerusalem and die. And so even as Jesus has been teaching and healing people, he's also been preparing his disciples for what's ahead, telling them a little bit more about the big picture of his life. And here, he doesn't just tell them he's going to die and be raised. He says that his death and resurrection will be the fulfillment, verse 31, of everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man. We've noticed before that the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's a reference back to the book of Daniel, where Daniel saw a man who had all of God's power and authority. But when Jesus talks about fulfillment here, he's not just talking about the things written by Daniel. In fact, he probably isn't thinking of specific passages of Scripture at all. It's much more likely Jesus is saying that the whole Old Testament was pointing to him. It was all a preparation for him. Everything it talked about and pictured and foreshadowed will be fulfilled in him. But of course, having said that Jesus is referring to the whole Old Testament, it's also true that we can stand here today and think of certain passages that align very closely with what Jesus says in verses 32 and 33. These verses are about humiliation and disgrace, followed by exaltation. And earlier we read one Old Testament passage that describes exactly that. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about a servant of God who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, cut off from the land of the living. And yet, Isaiah tells us, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. Isaiah 53 is a great summary of what happened to Jesus. But it was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Jesus' point here in Luke 18 is that he is part of a much, much bigger story than his disciples have realized. His life, death, and resurrection are part of an eternal plan, a plan that God has been working out for a long, long time. These disciples have not just come into contact with a wise, gifted teacher or an incredible healer. They've come into contact with the man who stands at the center of history. History revolves around this man they've been following. But we read in verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Luke says the same thing here in three different ways. We find this also back in chapter 9. 
after Jesus spoke there about his death, Luke said, they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. I don't think they had any trouble understanding the words Jesus used. He was speaking their language. The point is they couldn't see the meaning of his death. They couldn't see the point of it. They couldn't see why it had to happen. They know that he's the Christ of God. He's God's anointed one. They had grasped that back in chapter 9. But it makes no sense to them that God's anointed one would come to die. And so these disciples can't yet see Jesus. Yes, they can see him with their eyes, but they don't really see him. They can't grasp what he's about. And today we find the same thing. Most people have heard of Jesus. Plenty of people know some things about him. Maybe a story or two about his life. Or maybe some words from his teaching. But how many people see who Jesus really is? How many people know why he came? When it comes to the central purpose and mission of Jesus' life, many people are in the dark. They might say, well, he came to show us how to live. He came to show us how to love one another. They might say he's a friend who helps us in difficult times. But they've never grasped what Jesus himself said about his life that he came as part of the eternal plan of God the Father Almighty, that he came to give his life as a ransom, to pay for our sin and buy us for God. If we can only see the big picture of Jesus' life, then we'll realize that we can't be half-hearted about him. We can't just dabble in Jesus. He's either our Savior or we're lost without him. So if you consider yourself someone who has an interest in Jesus, then ask yourself the big question. What is the significance of his death? Does his death have any significance? Was it just an unfortunate accident? Or did he submit to death intentionally? Knowingly? Because nothing else could save you from hell. That's certainly what Jesus taught about his death. And that takes Jesus out of the realm of just an interesting figure from history. It makes him the one person you can't afford to ignore. The message of this little section is that we don't truly see who Jesus is until we understand why he can. If you're still in the dark about Jesus, ask God to show you the big picture of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Luke has shown us disciples who can't see. The second section of our passage shows us a blind man who can see. We'll pick up at chapter 18, verse 35. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, 
have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. The city of Jericho is about 20 kilometers from Jerusalem. So we get the sense that Jesus is slowly circling in towards Jerusalem. And as he appears on the outskirts of Jericho, it seems that either a crowd is traveling with him or a crowd has come out from the city to welcome him. Either way, this blind beggar realizes that something big is going on. He's told Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Commentators tell us this beggar would have been among the 5 to 10% of the population who were known as expendables, people with no power or privilege, people seen as having no worth, no use. The most this beggar could expect is a few coins now and again. A few coins from people who feel some sort of duty to be generous to the poor. And we might think the beggar has a few coins in mind when he calls out in verse 38, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But notice what the beggar has done. The person who spoke to him in verse 37 said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. The beggar calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This beggar somehow realizes Jesus is more than just a man from Nazareth. He's the son of David. For a Jew to call someone the son of David was a pretty significant thing. As you know, David had been Israel's greatest king. And God had given David a promise. David's son would be given an eternal throne. He would reign forever. Now at this point, David and all his immediate sons are long, long dead. But the Jews recognized that God's promise was not ultimately fulfilled in Solomon or any other of David's immediate physical sons. The Jews were waiting for David's son to come along. A man descended from David who would receive the eternal throne God had promised. So then, are we to suppose that this beggar had gone away and researched Jesus' ancestry? He discovered that Jesus' father, Joseph, was descended from King David? I doubt it. Certainly, Luke has traced that genealogy for us back in chapter 3. Luke wants us to see that Jesus is the promised son of David. Back in chapter 1, Mary was told by the angels that her son would be given the throne of his father David. His kingdom will never end. So we know the details. But it's unlikely this blind beggar had a braille copy of the records. Yet, blind as he is, somehow he sees who Jesus really is. 
He sees what many physically sighted people cannot see. This man from Nazareth is God's anointed king. The crowd at this point try to shut the beggar up. But, verse 39, we're told he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. The beggar knows what an opportunity he has here. This is a once-in-a-lifetime chance. He's not going to let an angry crowd shut him up. Remember, in the mind of the crowd, this man isn't worth Jesus' time. He's a nothing. But Jesus sees him differently. He orders the people rebuking the beggar to pick him up and bring him near. And then he asks the man a curious question. At least it seems curious to us. Verse 41, what do you want me to do for you? We might think he's blind. It's obvious what he wants. It might be obvious to us, but put yourself in this situation. Every day this beggar sits by the side of the road calling out for mercy. And what he expects is alms, a few coins thrown into his bowl. Today, this beggar has called out to Jesus. Jesus has heard the way he called out. Not Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus, son of David. And Jesus has stopped. He's made this expendable man the center of everyone's attention. The crowd is quiet. Jesus kneels down in front of these unseeing eyes and he asks the man, what do you want me to do for you? In other words, what do you see in me, blind man? How much do you think I can give you? Just another couple of coins? Just the same as everybody else? Or do you see that I can give you what no one else can? What do you want me to do for you? And the man says, Lord, I want to see. Forget the coins in my bowl. I want you to change my life. This blind beggar is asking Jesus for the thing that no one else can give him. This blind beggar can see who Jesus is. This incident is here to teach us that those who truly see Jesus trust that he can do what no one else can. The man's faith in Jesus is well placed. Jesus gives him physical sight. And he says, literally, your faith has saved you. The NIV translation might give the impression Jesus only has physical healing in mind. But Jesus is talking about a greater salvation. The man's request showed his faith in Jesus. And those who have faith in Jesus receive salvation. How do we know if we are truly seeing Jesus? Well, we can ask ourselves, do I see Jesus as one in a long line of good people? Do I see him as a man with some good things to contribute? A few good maxims to live by? like do to others as you would have them do to you? If that's the way we see Jesus, then he's just another nice man with a couple more coins to throw in our bowl. 
but he can't really help us. He can't change what's disabling us. He can't deal with the sin that corrodes our relationships and alienates us from God. All he's got is a couple more coins for our bowl. If that's how we see Jesus, then we're not really seeing him at all. Spiritually speaking, we're blinder than this beggar outside Jericho. But once we begin to see the uniqueness of Jesus, once we begin to see that he can change us, not just help us limp along the way we are, then we've begun to see Jesus for who he really is. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who comes to give us life in all its fullness. Those who truly see Jesus trust that he can do what no one else can. We have one more man to meet in Jericho. In chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, we find a rich man who wants to see. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. After healing the beggar, Jesus continues on into the city of Jericho. He's still being mobbed by the crowd. And Luke focuses in on one member of the crowd, a chief tax collector who was wealthy. His wealth came from the commission he took from the taxes. We've seen in previous weeks that tax collectors were possibly the most hated people in Israel. Not only did they work for the Romans, they were known to be greedy, willing to fleece even their own people. It's no wonder this crowd is not willing to make room for Zacchaeus. And he's too short to see over people. But we're told he wanted to see who Jesus was. He's in a similar situation to the blind man outside the city. The crowd are against him. The crowd told the blind man to be quiet. And here they close ranks on Zacchaeus. They're not going to make it easy for him to see Jesus. But like the blind man, this little tax collector is determined. He won't be put off. So he does two things that involve abandoning his dignity, opening himself up to ridicule. Verse 4 tells us he runs ahead of the crowd, which no dignified person would do in this culture. And he climbs a tree, which again, no dignified person would do. Zacchaeus shows that seeing Jesus is a matter of desperation for him. We don't know what he understood about Jesus, but we know nothing was going to put him off. Not a hostile crowd, and not the shame that came from hitching up his robes to run and climb a tree. 
Both the blind man and Zacchaeus show us that those who get to see who Jesus truly is are those who are serious about seeing him. Those are the people who get to see him. Those who won't let anything put them off. Sometimes we get a little nervous as Christians. We feel like we're walking on eggshells when we deal with non-believers. We worry that a wrong word is going to put them off Christianity. And certainly we ought to be careful about our witness. We want to be winsome and welcoming and clear. But the fact is, when a man or woman is serious about finding Jesus, nothing will put them off. Not a hostile crowd or a hostile family and not the blunders and mistakes of Christians either. Someone who's put off by our muddled words or by an old hymn that we sing, well, that person was never serious about Jesus in the first place. The examples of the blind man and Zacchaeus should help us to relax a little bit. We do want to attract people to Christ. But when someone is really seeking after Jesus, they'll go through fire and water to get to him. Moses told the Israelites, you will find the Lord your God if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. So if you're not a Christian, how serious are you about finding what Jesus is all about? Do you have a list of excuses? Excuses for why you keep your distance from him? If we look for excuses, we can always find plenty. Christians are hypocrites. The church is too stuffy and old-fashioned. The church doesn't have the right program for me. The Bible's too hard to read. I'm too busy. I'd get so much hassle from my family. We can always find excuses. Zacchaeus could have found plenty too. But he wanted to see Jesus. So he ignored all the reasons he had for staying at the back of the crowd. And he went after Jesus. The amazing thing is, when Zacchaeus did that, he found that actually Jesus was looking for him. Look again at verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. The implication here is that Jesus knows about Zacchaeus. And it's part of his plan to seek this little man out. He says, I must stay at your house today. We could translate that, it is necessary that I stay at your house. We talked earlier about the big picture of Jesus' life. The fact that he came on a mission to save men and women. Here we see that the big picture includes little people like Zacchaeus. Jesus came for him. Back in chapter 15, Jesus used the picture of a shepherd looking for a lost sheep. That's what's going on here. The truth is that when we go looking for Jesus, we find that he is looking for us. Jesus is not some evasive character who tries to hide from us. 
He's not someone who tries to keep the truth about himself secret. When we genuinely seek him, we find that he is seeking us. Zacchaeus is delighted to welcome Jesus to his house. But not everyone is happy. Look at verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. The crowd have not learned much from Jesus' ministry. They were complaining about this very same thing back in chapter 5. As far as they're concerned, people like Zacchaeus are not worthy of Jesus. And what they're implying is, we are worthy of Jesus' time and attention. He should be with us, not that sinner Zacchaeus. And so this crowd show by their attitude that they're still proud. They're not aware of their own sin and unworthiness. They don't know that they need God's mercy. And so, as Jesus is going to point out in a moment, this crowd is not ready to receive God's mercy. They'll only be ready when they set aside their pride and come humbly to Jesus. And this crowd also has no confidence that Jesus can change lives. No one would dispute the fact that Zacchaeus was a nasty piece of work. He wouldn't have risen to be a wealthy chief tax collector if he was an upstanding character. But the crowd seems to think Jesus should wait for Zacchaeus to clean up his act. Then maybe he'd be worthy of a visit from Jesus. But that's not how Jesus works. The Bible tells us we can't clean up our act. We might be able to give up a few outward noticeable sins. But we cannot take our self-centered, self-glorifying hearts and make them God-centered and God-glorifying. That requires a supernatural change in our hearts. The good news about Jesus is that he died for sinners who can't clean up their act. He goes looking for sinners. And he sends his Holy Spirit to rearrange the hearts of repentant sinners. So the order we find in the Bible is not clean up your act and God will accept you. The order is when you come to God as a humble sinner, he will accept you and clean up your act. That's what happens to Zacchaeus. Jesus seeks him out and then comes the change in Zacchaeus' life and his priorities. Look at verse 8. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. There's an important contrast here with the last rich man we met in Luke's gospel. In chapter 18, a rich ruler made inquiries about following Jesus. He looked into what it would cost. Jesus told him it would cost him his other God, his money. 
Jesus said to him, if you want to belong to the true God, you'll have to let go of the God you're serving at the moment. And Luke says, when he heard this, the rich ruler became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. When the rich ruler learned he couldn't have both gods, he chose to keep serving his wealth. Zacchaeus is also a man of great wealth. But now that he has Jesus, now that the Son of God has accepted him, Zacchaeus sees his wealth in a whole new way. It's not his source of security anymore. It's a means to honor God, to help others. And so he gives to the degree that would have been considered very unwise in his culture. Giving 20% was considered generous. Giving more than that was considered foolish. You were just setting yourself up for difficulties. And when it came to making restitution for cheating, the Old Testament law required giving 20% on top of what you had embezzled. Zacchaeus is going way beyond that. What has brought about this change? from a miser to a reckless giver. It's the fact that meeting Jesus has changed this little man's heart. He used to live for money. Now he's found a much more valuable treasure. And the evidence for that is seen in the way he lets go of his money. The point here is that when Jesus finds us, the result is a changed life. We could substitute anything else here in the place of money. If we live for human praise and recognition, then knowing Jesus will allow us to let human praise come or go. We find something much greater. The acceptance and the smile of God. If we live for power, Knowing Jesus allows us to be happy with a low position. Because our sense of value comes from being loved by the King of Kings. We don't need to lord it over others to feel important anymore. When Jesus finds us, we're able to let go of those other gods we've been serving. The change in Zacchaeus' life is evidence of what has happened in his heart. And so Jesus can say in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house. The crowd are still classifying Zacchaeus as a sinner. But to Jesus, he's now a son of Abraham. Abraham was the man God chose to be the father of God's people. And Jesus says, sure, Zacchaeus was a notorious sinner. Sure, he didn't deserve my mercy, but I have sought him out. I have changed his heart, and now he's truly part of God's people. Then Jesus closes with words that take us right back to the start of our passage in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Earlier we heard Jesus speak about his coming death. 
we said that we don't truly see who Jesus is until we understand why he came. And now Jesus explains why he had to die. He had to die because you and I were cut off from our Creator. We were guilty and condemned because of our sin. And because of our hearts that are bent away from worship of the true God. Our hearts that naturally worship anything and everything but the true God. Jesus says we were lost. That's why he had to die. Of course, in one sense, he didn't have to die at all. He could have left us lost and blind, enslaved to the little idols that we worship. But that's not the kind of God he is. The true God is the God who seeks out lost, blind, idol worshippers. He's the God who rejoices to save lost sinners. And so he had to die. He had to endure everything that we deserved so that we could go free. And that's why Isaiah prophesied about Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus came to seek and to save sinners like you and me. And he's still saving people today because he didn't stay dead. As he said, as he predicted here, on the third day, he rose from the dead. He's the living Savior. He's still doing what no one else can do. Opening blind spiritual eyes. Saving souls. Changing lives. We're going to close our time together by worshipping him as we sing, Hallelujah, what a saviour. The song is Man of Sorrows. to deal with a judge who has a heart of stone. Things seem pretty hopeless for this widow. Just as things can seem hopeless for Christians living in a society where God is not honored. A society where those who seek to honor God are increasingly marginalized. And in many parts of the world persecuted. We're hearing about that every Sunday. But in the face of this widow's apparently hopeless situation, she keeps coming with her plea. 
She doesn't give up hope. And so we're told in verse 4, for some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. This judge seems quite proud of his bad reputation. But even though he has no inclination to help the widow, he does help her. Simply because she persists so much, she gets on his nerves. She's driving him mad. We've already said the judge is not supposed to represent God. He's here because he's so different from God. Look what Jesus says in verse 6. Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. If even the unjust judge can be persuaded to give justice, how much more can we count on God to bring justice? To those he has chosen, those he has sent Christ to die for. Remember the picture back in chapter 15 in what we often refer to as the story of the prodigal son. The father watching at the window for his son and then throwing all dignity to the wind when he sees his son coming. Remember how he hitched up his robes and ran down the road to meet his son. When we bring our requests to God, that's the God we're praying to. Our loving, attentive father. He couldn't be more different from the unjust judge. And the context here, justice, is tied to Christ's return. That's the day when wrong will be put right, and tears will be wiped away. Jesus has promised us that day is coming, and we're to pray persistently for him to fulfill his promise, even when it feels like our prayers aren't being heard, even when it seems like a wasted effort. The final lines of the Bible give us the words we are to always pray and never give up. The prayer is, come, Lord Jesus. Come like you promised you would. Yes, there are lots of things to be persistent about in our prayers. But in the context of this passage, the persistent prayer Jesus is calling for is prayer for his return. For the consummation of his kingdom. But maybe we're uncomfortable praying for that. Maybe we think there's still too much work to be done for God. Maybe we think of family members who are still outside God's kingdom. So we hesitate to pray for the decisive day when the king will come back. Maybe we don't pray this because we're so comfortable here. We're having too much fun to pray for Jesus to come back. Or maybe we're aware that Christians have been praying for Christ's return for a couple of thousand years. And well, he hasn't answered it yet. Maybe we should just wait and see. But if we love him, if our hearts long to be with him, don't we long for him to come back? However busy we are serving him, 
Don't we want to meet him and see him as he is? And I say this carefully, however much we love our families, don't we love our Savior more? Aren't we helping our families by letting them know we love our Savior more? Doesn't that magnify his worthiness in front of them? Don't we long to stand before our Savior and tell him to his face that we love him? Don't we long to take our place in that congregation before the throne singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. The Apostle Paul describes Christians as people who long for Christ's appearing. And that's surely the point of the second half of verse 8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Someone has said, the Son of Man will be looking for those who are looking for him. We show we're looking for him when we pray for his return. Whatever we have to go through in this life, our great hope is the promise of Christ's return. When we pray for his return, we show that we trust God's faithfulness. He hasn't come back yet, but he will come. We trust him. And so we keep praying, come, Lord Jesus. We're going to do that together now as we sing, There is a Day. If you'll stand with me.